Hello, I'm Chris Ray, and welcome to the latest podcast from the London Institute of Banking and Finance. In this episode, we'll be talking about what else but Brexit. There has been much discussion on the possible economic impacts of our decision to leave the EU, and in particular, what it might mean for London's position as a global financial centre. To chew over some of these possible outcomes and share their views on what might happen, or indeed what's happening already, I'm delighted to be joined by two of our senior members of our faculty, and they are... I'm Pete Hine, and I'm the Henry Grunfeld Professor of Banking. Um, I'm John Hearn, and uh, I'm a Senior Lecturer in Economics and Banking and Finance. Great. Thank you very much. Pete, I'd like to start with you. What do you think the big Brexit <coughs> issues are that face London's banking and finance sector? Well, I think if we look at banking and finance a bit in isolation from the rest of the issues the country is facing, it comes down to two critical areas for us. One is how the UK economy is going to perform, obviously a fundamental influence on how banking performs. And the second is how the banking and finance community industry will go forward dealing with the rest of the EU. The rest of the world isn't really affected. Let me leave the UK economy to John, is better, much better suited to answer questions there. We think about the banking and finance industries dealing with Europe, it raises many, many issues. Today, technically, it's almost like there isn't a border. Now, we haven't really got a perfect single market in financial services, so I, I'm not arguing that. But it is facilitated, and it goes under a scheme called passporting, which means, in simple terms, that a, a bank in Germany is able to do business, Deutsche Bank, let's say, in the UK, without even being subject, really, to most UK regulation, and it can use its German license to do that, and of course, our British banks can do the same, and American banks, as an example of Japanese banks, that are located in London, can also more easily do business in Europe. So, obviously, as we leave the EU, all of a sudden, those easy regimes will be gone, and we don't know what the new regime will be, and if we assume, I'd have to say today, perhaps the worst, that we won't have technical rules for this coming forward, then it means that banks in London dealing with Europe will be very similar to banks that were, let's say, just based in New York dealing with Europe. They'll be outside the EU, of course, and we have physical proximity, and that means a lot. Uh, we have the same time zone, lots of advantages. But we're sort of trying to figure out how we take advantage of those things right now. So I would want to leave our listeners thinking that we're a very creative bunch in the city. And uh, we, we want to get there. We want to make it work. And we probably will. But we can't be too certain of how at the moment. OK, thanks, Pete. I mean, I've been reading some interesting statistics that have been produced by all sorts of different organizations about the impact on financial services of, of, a, of a hard Brexit. Um, London School of Economics has estimated around 25 billion in revenues come from EU-related banking business. Uh, an economics uh, think tank in Brussels suggests that EU clients could move business worth 1.6 trillion to the continent uh, as a result of Brexit. Um, and City UK in September 2016 suggested that potentially up to 70,000 financial jobs might be at risk of Brexit. I mean, those are all they're very broad numbers, and some of them are very much larger than others, but they're all large. Do you think these uh, forecasts are, are realistic? It, it, can you see that happening already? Could I pop in just there? Because uh, you can't always 
believe what you read in the newspaper, but uh, City AM this morning have announced that Deutsche Bank puts faith in Brexit Britain uh, with its new city headquarters. Um, and the statistics that you're tending to read there are all the, the negative, what might be lost. Sure. Um, and equally, if you looked at it very carefully, you can find that there are lots of opportunities to gain. Uh, Deutsche Bank uh, obviously feel that it's a good thing to come here. And uh, as we open up, uh, we already are a worldwide centre, as we open up to the, the world, I think there are great opportunities which will reverse those numbers. And I think those numbers tend to be uh, looked at from the point of view of let's try and find out what might happen which is damaging and it doesn't reflect a balanced sort of opinion of all the benefits that might come our way. I think there's, if I could put it as, as, as two sides, I think as, as John has, uh, has pointed out, there are certain roles and things that we do for the EU, if you will, in London, which the EU will probably similar to many other countries, will want to insist move back or move with inside their borders. And I could point to some of those more clearly, which uh, if you wanted to start the EU bank policy institution, the European Banking Authority, is located in London. It makes up the rules for the EU, or it's part of the rulemaking process. It doesn't necessarily make up the rules. It would be absurd for that entity to stay in a country outside, you know, where it, its rules are affecting. So it will, what will move with it, maybe, we'll, we'll see. There are other parts, there are, then we get into sort of technical bits. The, the uh, German central bank has, uh, and regulators have stated that they want German corporations uh, to be called on and visited by bankers from Germany, not flying in from London and doing business. So some of those become quite clear. But um, on the other side, London has a vast infrastructure that we can't understate. So we've got a lot of the legal talent, the accounting talent, uh, a lot of technical things about sophisticated financial markets, and that infrastructure is here, and it doesn't move easily. And a lot of reasons banks want to be staying here, and why London will certainly stay the global international center, that's not going to change. I think what I see is that certain European centers will pick up inside EU business. And for us, maybe um, there is more non-EU business that comes to, to London. So maybe we haven't focused enough on that. And emerging markets, the rest of the world outside the EU are a continuing opportunity. But I think in the short run, some of the negative press you've seen has identified a lot of specific activity that, in an odd sense, is EU-related that's in the UK. And as we leave the, the EU, it would be normal for some of those things, like they, they wouldn't exist outside America for the similar business in America. So we've got sort of this kind of push-pull, and there's certain obvious things that will go, but the opportunities are a little more vague, if I could put it that way. Peter's exactly right there, because the infrastructure is here, the network is here, um, and one other thing that's very important is the office space is here, and it often isn't in some of the other countries that are thinking of trying to boost their financial centre. They just haven't got the infrastructure that can do that. And uh, I've had little chats with people uh, in China and India, and they're thinking 
big moves into the UK uh, as uh, China becomes a much more powerful financial uh, um, a country with a financial uh, influence, uh, and the same for India. So I think John, generally you've had a <coughs> slightly more positive view of, of Brexit yeah. than many other economists referring to your early comments. Yeah. You know, what, what do you think the implications might be for, for the UK economy in, the, in its broadest sense? Yeah, I've not been slightly more. I've been a lot more than many economists in terms of supporting Brexit. I am very um, happy that things are going to move forward. Uh, I probably disagreed with many economists just because I'm older than they are. Um, and in 1973, I was quite happy uh, that the UK joined. And in 1975, in the referendum, I voted to stay in because it was a move towards free international trade. You had loads of countries with tariff and quota barriers that were absolutely pointless. And going into the EU removed all the tariffs within member countries and lowered the common external tariff to the lowest level of uh, any member country. And that was all moving towards free trade and free trade is the way uh, to grow economies. So I was quite happy that that was the way forward. What then concerned me uh, was that this political monolith tended to grow inside uh, the EU and there was one example after another of resources being used inefficiently, wasted, the common agricultural policy unfortunately um, used up lots of money in uh, the way that uh, it was set up. So now uh, in the last referendum I was quite happy to say that there is more opportunities to develop free trade and raise living standards uh, by leaving and the point that I made in an article I wrote back in, uh, in March of last year was exactly Nobody can tell from the statistics that come out of the Remain side or the um, Leave side uh, what the future for the UK economy is going to be. So uh, silly things were said on both sides, numbers were thrown out and they were all based upon spurious models that uh, uh, often forecast things incorrectly. Um, so I felt uh, that one should ignore thinking about the bigger picture. Each person should think about themselves and think about whether or not Brexit would be good for them, their family, their future, and try and vote in that way. Because by doing that, you then hope that uh, the wisdom of the crowds uh, will move in the right direction. And so I was both surprised and happy uh, when we did decide that uh, this is the right time to leave. And I do very much think it is. I think there's some very positive things going forward. Um, there's lots of talk about um different types of Brexit, yep. hard Brexit, soft Brexit, and all sorts of different things in between. Um, the, by, by the moment, it looks very much like we're going down the hard route. Yep. What does that actually mean? And, and what might the implications of, of a hard Brexit be versus taking a, a, a different approach? Again, hard Brexit is not um, a term that means anything specifically. Uh, David Cameron uh, said uh, when he was threatening us, that if you decide to leave, I'm going to get out straight away. I'm going to trigger Article 50, which would have been hard Brexit. We would have gone straight in, but then said, well, no, I'm not. Uh, and so we had 10 months or so to think about it and to negotiate. Um, but hard Brexit is one which removes everything at a stroke, if you like, puts you right outside the system. Uh, and the threats are that you're going to leave the single market. Um, Yes, you are going to leave the single market, 
but you're still going to be in a free trade situation because uh, EU business is not going to erect uh, barriers against us. Uh, so in a sense, we don't have to negotiate our way out. I was speaking to some customs and excise people who were saying we've got books and books to go through to change all these things. And I said, well, why are you changing them? Why not just say it's free trade from the UK to the rest of the world? And then as things change, uh, if someone puts a barrier against you, you can deal with individual things. You don't have to bring everything back from a high uh, level of, of trade agreements back to, to zero slowly. Uh, you know, hard Brexit means let's go out and let's start from free trade and if we need to develop anything further um, we can. So I'm quite happy that uh, whenever we left there will be a lobby saying no this is a hard Brexit um, and it, it means very little. Uh, and another thing in a sense that worries me is that I read a lot uh, particularly um, from some politicians, uh, from uh, some uh, people who were very staunch Remainers still concentrating on the fact uh, that, uh, you know, can we stop this, can we stop this? And uh, it's a very negative attitude. Let's take on the fact that this is going to happen and let's just be positive about it. Uh, and I'm quite happy that things going forward will be uh, beneficial to the UK economy. So can you talk about some of the big numbers um, you know, in, in this positive view? Yep. Um, inflation, unemployment, yep. growth. You know, I know these things are impossible to predict, but... Where do you see that going as, as a result of the decision we've taken? Well, firstly, uh, and again, I should point out that I have a view which is not agreed uh, uh, with, with all economists. It'll have no effect whatsoever on inflation. Inflation is in the system anyhow. Inflation uh, is the result of what the Bank of England have been doing uh, last year in terms of broad monetary growth. When we left uh, and uh, the exchange rate fell, uh, quite dramatically. The exchange rate was going down, there was a quick dip, there's been a recovery. Uh, that's nothing to do with why inflation is rising now. Inflation is rising now because of the policies that the Bank of England instituted with regard to interest rates and QE in, uh, in a previous period. So I'm quite happy that inflation will be what inflation is and it's nothing at all to do with Brexit. Um, unemployment, um, I think, uh, again, unemployment is relatively low and there may well be some shakeout. Uh, probably the most damaging impact uh, that there could be on unemployment is not Brexit, it's what might happen to interest rates. Uh, that may have some impact uh, upon unemployment in the economy. Both what Peter and I have said uh, is fairly positive for economic growth. Uh, so I think uh, you know there are good signs for economic growth. And the one thing that just still worries me is the balance of payments uh, and the balance of payments current account. And I think there are certain problems in the UK which are central to the UK uh, and they're still ones that need to be addressed, which is monetary policy and low interest rates and fiscal policy and government overspending. You know, 1.7 trillion debt is nothing to do with uh, uh, the EU and Brexit, but it is a problem in the UK that we have to address in order to improve these big macroeconomic numbers. I would indeed agree. I think we haven't, as a country, we've been distracted for so long that we haven't really discussed the, the, the two big deficits that John's mentioned. But I do think, I think there is a bit of uh, caused inflation. We've had, we, when we look at prices, I think anybody listening to this is going to realize that their grocery bills have gone up in the last several months. 
and uh, their heating bills, if they haven't, are likely to go up, and fuel prices have gone up already. And it, it's hard to actually, to me, to divide that between how much of it is an increased uh, decrease in the currency value and, on the other side, world commodity prices. And so, you know, trying to split that is tricky. And I think I'd come back, there's, there's two sort of big issues as they relate to sort of banking and finance, I think, gives a good example. In that we had the vote. I found in the vote one of the most disappointing things for us, particularly as, it, as the institution we are. John pointed out the misguided statistics from different sides, was the level of economic debate was poor. And it was poor for the whole public to understand some things. And I think it showed that we all need a, a better basic set of skills in understanding economics and finance from a really young age to be able to engage in these discussions. And that's a key role for what we do, and, and hopefully everybody listening will realize that makes our role even more important, that we can raise those, that, that basic level of, of debate. And I think if that falls into the referendum itself, one of the things that I think it did was it, it simplified a, a very, very complex question. And I think what's come out is that, while it seemed in or out, but the the result of out is much, much more complicated than people thought. And, the, and that complication ultimately results in certain types of transitions that have to happen. And will those transitions be, be rough? I think coming back to your question about hard or soft, to me it's, it's really a question of how rough the transition gets to. I think in the long run we'll, we'll find our way through things. But that complicated side. So to me, had the debate been, I think, at a slightly raised level of, of the technical issues and some of these things, the time frame of just two years and when we would trigger these things, et cetera, would have been much longer. And I think that's a big point for the banking and finance community because now I think the community who's dealing with the EU side of it and particularly foreign banks that are here, which is the bulk, frankly, of the city, uh, it, the time frame being so short means that they often default to some poor decisions. And so that, those may be made up for in the long term. But I think it's tricky because uh, for many of these issues, the integration and unwinding will take many years. And so obviously we can't go back, but uh, a better debate would have been, you know, how long this process, you know, if we wanted to yeah. do it, you know, what the time frame should be. And that's a challenge because today if you're a foreign bank, uh, John, John mentioned Deutsche looking for a new city headquarters. They expanded over decades here. They've got lots of different sites. It's very inefficient management trying to bring them together in a one site. And obviously they're committed to continuing here, which is great. It's a good thing. But you kind of, they're almost a microcosm of what it is. So they've got all these different bits. They're not sort of talking to each other how, trying to figure out where it all plays in. And we started talking about, you know, the EU business. And one of my interesting takes from what will happen is that ultimately, uh, as we separate from the EU in a hard Brexit, okay, with, let's say, no agreement post that, our position in London to the rest of the continent 
is uh, economically similar to New York. Right? It's a country outside the EU. Now we have all this physical proximity, but do certain foreign banks, particularly US banks, say, well, why don't we just do that business from New York rather than London because we have a bigger infrastructure already in New York? And that's, that's a real challenge for us. I mean, we have these other advantages, but it, it is tricky. I think, um, so had we had more time in this process, I think it could have been a smoother one. We could have demonstrated more of our advantages, which right now there's probably a lot of sort of, I don't want to say knee-jerk, but sort of quicker decisions that are going to be unfortunate for us. I'll pick up on the time issue, because one of the things that we talked about previously was the sense from some of the, the institutions that there, there was a need for more clarity, but that the time available to make change means that waiting for that clarity isn't necessarily going to be possible. So there, there was this debate that, that we were both involved in previously where we were talking about whether institutions needed to make decisions now about how they're going to deal with it versus waiting and waiting and then not having enough time to, to, to make their decisions and, and make any moves they need to do with people and infrastructure because they have to, because that, that time, time available before it happens is narrowing and narrowing and narrowing. Do, do you have a sense that, that, that the banks and the financial services institutions in London are already starting to make these plans and, and starting to, to move, so to speak? Yes, undoubtedly they are. In fact, there are numerous examples I, that some banks have shared with me, some U.S. banks that have uh, operations outside of London are slowly moving new, new positions. They're not moving, let's say, somebody from one job to another, but they're being replaced, let's say, in whether it might be Dublin or Frankfurt and those roles. And that, that is happening. And it's a, it's a process. Remember, these are people. And as John mentioned, infrastructure, there isn't necessarily a massive amount of housing to replace the city of, to, for the city of London to move lock, stop, and barrel to, to Frankfurt. There aren't international schools. There aren't all the other infrastructural personal things that are there. But slowly over time, I wouldn't be surprised if a number of, well, U.S. banks, I think one announced this week that they would be moving some more people to their Frankfurt office. And so, yes, they're, they're not going to just tell somebody tomorrow you have to pick up your kids, take them out of school, all these things. Their spouse, husband, wife might have another role here, and it might take a while for them to do that. But it's already underway. The time frame is as important as having a date on which things are going to happen. Um, if you, you know, ask any civil servant, how long do you need to do this? Oh, a very long time, a very long time. It's a sort of Parkinson's law about things expand for the amount of time that's available for it. I think as soon as you've got dates, then people will work to those dates. It's going to happen. Okay. Um, you touched on regulation a little bit earlier yeah. in your example about um, HMRC, and I'm interested in to understand in terms of the regulatory framework in the banking finance sector, is it a case of just ripping it all up and starting again? Or is it a case of modifying what exists already? I, I, yeah, I don't think it is because um, you've got two important elements to deal with banking regulation and they're the things that deal with liquidity and capital adequacy. Now, capital adequacy is determined 
for the world by the Bank of International Settlements, the Basel Agreements, um, and that, that's nothing that's EU-centric about that. And the liquidity argument is really based upon central banks. In other words, the liquidity of sterling is dependent upon what the Bank of England does. The liquidity in the Eurozone is dependent upon what the ECB does. And although uh, both the Bank of England intervene uh, on capital adequacy and make certain additions, and the EU has done the same, I don't think that there's a, a really important problem here. I think we're going to stick with the same sort of big regulatory bodies uh, that deal with capital adequacy and liquidity uh, and um, uh, all the other things will uh, uh, drop into place. That sounds very, very simple, Pete. What do you think? <laughs> well, no, I was going to say, and this is probably one where I think John and I are, are at crossed swords, so make it, make it a little bit exciting perhaps. <laughs> and that, so the, the Basel Committee sets a framework in, and the EU adopts it for the EU, but actually even inside the EU, countries can, uh, must meet those minimum standards, but then there's extra. Now, some people have a, a, a poor way of describing this as saying that there's gold plating on regulation. I, I don't like that word because I think you, increased regulation can sometimes be bureaucratic, but it also can mean that we have higher standards. And so it's it. Now, in the UK, we actually do take it a little bit further than what the Basel Committee in the EU has. And th that's not necessarily a bad thing. Switzerland certainly does too. They had a very bad crisis experience that kind of divided them. Uh, the US even does it slightly differently in some ways that are top. And now it's being quite assaulted actually under the Trump administration about where they, they go and, and how. But we have between ring-fenced banking, uh, which is a much more complex requirement than the rest of Europe has, and, and then there's the other side of that, which is the um, conduct regulation, which is, um, to a certain degree, most consumers see it as what you're being sold, but it's also about the cleanliness and hygiene and uh, disclosure factors in the way trading is. And I think that is uh, one of the strengths of London in that we have an ever-growing sort of conduct regime to try and make the markets uh, cleaner and more transparent. And so this, this debate now will move on to a little bit of whether the UK, you know, where it stands on those, those standards of, of bank regulation, prudential safety and, and conduct, uh, if you will, transparency and cleanliness of the market. And there are going to be some sort of push-me-pull-you kind of pressures that come out of that. And uh, whether, I, I think we're headed for uh, a serious debate about uh, onshore and offshore concepts in banking regulation. Uh, there's our banks, what you'd think of as your high street bank, which is no longer going to be too much on the high street perhaps, but it's your, who, you, who you deal with as a bank. And they're, in basic terms, they're the domestic banks. They've got our deposits, they do local lending, things like that. And I think there's a strong attitude, probably, that we've seen the worst of that and we don't want to see it again. And so, you know, how difficult will be. But on the international banks that are here, there's always been a kind of a debate about do we, you know, prudentially need to worry about them? You know, because if uh, a German bank has a problem here, would the UK, how much support would they need from the UK, and should we and shouldn't we? And 
So do we now have a kind of a split kind of concept of dealing with what amounts to as an, an offshore foreign bank situation here and an onshore? And we, it's, it actually is probably overdue that we have that kind of debate. And I think that's, that's a good debate to have. So those two sides, and then on the, uh, the conduct side, our Financial Conduct Authority has an, an extraordinarily wide remit, almost one that's impossible to meet uh, because it's just so big. And does it kind of have to you know, refocus itself in which activities it wants to do best and uh, are, are most important and prioritized? So, and then, so you've got within that context, one, the regulator's job is ultimately about you know, safety, soundness, you know, and, and trying to protect in a way. Uh, and it shouldn't be necessarily too much about the prosperity. As I say, they, I wouldn't rule that out entirely. Whereas it, there's a slight conflict with the government's interest because the government wants a financial system that helps support the economy and helps the economy grow. And so the government should always have a sort of a bias towards expansion of financial services. And the regulator should have a natural bias towards control. And while those things in most countries after the crisis sort of met and they were on the same path, I think we're at a path of slight divergence now. And, and probably one of the best ways, examples of that is the Basel Committee was really discussing a slightly higher step in bank capital requirement, more conservative, if you will, bank regulation. And it was actually the EU's minister in the last year who said they didn't want it. We actually didn't stand up so much and argue with that, but it was actually the EU that didn't. So it's, it's not unique to us, but this debate about the role of regulation government is going to take on a new, um, new step. There's a new phase coming. It's an important point that uh, Peter makes because there is this division, if you like, between international rules and regulations that want to see a sort of level playing field for all financial institutions around the world so that they can't compete with each other. You know, come here and regulations are easier than they are there. You don't want that sort of system. You really want a basic level of regulation internationally that will then just allow those centres which offer the better services to thrive and other centres... Uh, um, to decline nationally, um, and this is where the ring fencing is interesting because nationally you're looking at retail banking as accepting deposits, making loans to people, making loans to small businesses, issuing mortgages, and that's very much a national thing, which um, you know the conduct authority should be looking carefully at, uh, at how that is managed, and it's it's a quite a strong. Um, issue with ring fencing that you do look upon that positively whereby you're separating um, retail banking the traditional type of retail banking from the more speculative trading side of banking and you're not letting the risk cross over between these two parts of the institution uh, and I'm quite happy that uh, uh, that banking is, is two things it is uh, uh, what we all understand as traditional forms of banking uh, and that's very much a national um, thing that we can deal with, can be ring-fenced, if you like. And there is then the international side of, of banking, uh, which does incorporate the trading side um, specifically. And that needs 
regulations which are sort of levelling playing fields across the world. No need to compete with each other uh, by saying no, our regulations are uh, easier than yours, so come here, because that then creates the sort of problems that led to the last financial crisis. Okay, um, talking about trade and international aspects, of course there's lots of change going on in, in the United States, which Pete's already mentioned. Um, how will this affect our relationship with our friends in, in the US of A, and how might it affect their relationship with, with Europe as well? It'll change the pattern of trade, um, and uh, that's not necessarily a bad thing. But I don't think it will change it as much as people think. I think there are politicians sitting within the EU who are very keen to say, no, we don't want to deal with you anymore, uh, you're out of it now, you're away from us. But there are businesses in Europe that sell so many, you know, BMW doesn't want uh, any restrictions on uh, what it import, uh, exports to the UK. Uh, VW doesn't. There are lots of businesses there which will just carry on trading as they have always done. And I think there is a sort of a political threat uh, which will not manifest itself because at the end of the day it's trade that, uh, that matters. It's not talking about what we're going to do. It's actually doing it that's the important thing. We have, I think, part of the debate, and I, I always think of myself as not being a macroeconomist, is you know, how, as John said, people voting, uh, what affects them and, and how they perceive things. And I think as we talk about changing patterns of trade, we should start to think more about individuals thinking about how it affects them. And if we looked at the U.S., it's kind of interesting. I, I, there was a lot of discussion, and uh, I think President Trump, uh, a lot of his campaign support came from people who felt they had been left out of a globalized economy. And I wouldn't say that's too very different from some of the Brexit vote. But um, on the other hand, there are all those people who have benefited from the globalized economy. And I think as uh, President Trump was about looking at uh, certain types of uh, trade restrictions that he's discussed in his campaign, uh, there's a greater awareness that many people's jobs in the U.S. benefit from those trade arrangements. And you can't build a car in the United States that probably doesn't have some parts that were made in Mexico. And some of those people might lose their jobs. Now, others might gain other jobs, but I think it's, you know, it's very tricky. So I think as individuals, and I, I talked before about getting more knowledge of the, the what the economy is all about, start to realize what affects their role, there'll be a, uh, a greater voice. I think it's really good for democracy if we can get there because uh, many people who didn't think about their, um, how they fit into the global economy will. And so your, your job, how much it's linked to a global supply chain someplace will start to become more, more knowledgeable. And in some cases, it's been distorted. Uh, that's always bad if we can fix those distortions. But in other cases, I think um, people will recognize that we live in a global world. I, I have become more and more viewing uh, Brexit. And it's, it's not, uh, please don't take it as an opinion of turning back the clock. But looking at, at, at Brexit, and much of the debate was about sovereignty, and it's kind of interesting, in a globalized trading world, I think that's a, a word that needs a new definition. Because we used to think of sovereignty really as our government. Uh, 
but it's sort of our whole life today. And you know, I, a lot of the food I eat didn't grow nearby. And so, you know, do I want to go back to eating things that just grow within 20 miles of where I live, which was really kind of what it was 100 years ago? We, we couldn't go back to that route. So we have to think about, you know, there's s certain types of sovereignty about our voting and law and stuff. And then there's this sort of, if I could put it, the economic sovereignty of our lives, which it has advanced to a degree that, you know, where the software in my phone is made, developed and stuff, that is part of what the world is today. And, you know, medicine is a global business and all these things. So it's a different world and we, we're finding our way in creating a new relationship with it. And I think that's what this is all about. Well, as an economist, uh, I'd like to precede sovereignty with consumer sovereignty. Um, that consumers can, around the world, buy whatever they want from whatever country they want. And I'm not particularly happy about Trump's idea of wanting to impose trade restrictions and protect jobs in America. And I hope that that won't happen because that is just a movement towards inefficiency rather than efficiency. And uh, um, just around the world now, people will want to buy what they want to buy. And it doesn't really matter which country it comes from. In fact, you know, what matters more is uh, um, what you produce for markets anywhere in the world and allow consumer sovereignty to distribute those resources efficiently. So for me, sovereignty is consumer sovereignty. That's what, uh, that's what we want. Excellent. So we've had a really wide-ranging conversation. <laughs> world economy, <laughs> banking finance in London, consumerism, fantastic. Uh, we're nearly out of time. Um, but before we finish, uh, just sort of one final question, which mm. is, you know, if you were Theresa May, yeah. uh, or indeed the people working, negotiating on behalf of, of the UK with the EU about our, our departure, Pete, in terms of banking and finance, what, what, are the, what do you think the priorities really need to be? I guess I think if we want to be a world financial centre, it's really who well it, it, it fundamentally in the definition is that we need people from all over the world to be part of it and I think that's a statement um, Theresa May has made a number of statements about we want to uh, show the world what it's about to be you know free and, and purporting free trade and I think one of the difficult things uh, is the position of international citizens if you will who are here in the UK today and I think the sooner that role is clarified, I think in her debate right now, uh, and she said it would, it would restrict her ability to negotiate, and I'll, I'll respect that, uh, she's made it, that comment. But I said on behalf of the banking and finance world in the city, I think if we stood up first and said, you know, we know that we want to be a world leader and we, we want people from around the world to be welcome here and we're going to make that statement first and we think other people, we're going to set an example. I think that would be helpful. Um, I, I'm not involved in the negotiations so I, know I can't say what's the best negotiating position but if I were thinking of what the city wants that would be the, the ultimate statement for the city. 
from my point of view, uh, I would uh, go back to something that Peter mentioned earlier about how poor the level of economic debate was around Brexit. And I would like to think that the level of debate will be raised. And um, I think with Brexit, people felt that they were being talked down to. Um, you know, Mark Carney says, you know, if you leave, then we're going to have to put interest rates up. And then when we said we were going to leave, he put them down. Uh, George Osborne said, if we leave, we're going to have to have an emergency budget and we're going to raise taxes. And then we didn't, and they lowered taxes. And sort of people have seen through that and go, well, you know, what are we talking about here? Their questions weren't answered. They were just talked down to by people who were telling them, you'll be better off just listening to us and doing what we say. I think now Theresa May has got to take people with her. She's got to explain things a little more clearly and feel that uh, you know, there is an open debate. It's not just one group of people saying, no, we mustn't do this, or yes, we must do this. It's people talking to each other and dealing with the pros and the cons, because there are going to be good things and there are going to be bad things. And what you want at the end of the day, as economists always say, is you want the benefits to outweigh the costs, and then going forward, uh, we will all be better off. So I would just like to raise the level of economic debate, and I hope Peter and I are doing that at this very moment. Excellent. Well, I think we'll have to leave it there. I'm sure we'll come back to this subject again and again over the next two years, but for now, I'd like to thank you very, both very much for your time. And, uh, of course, uh, thank our listeners for tuning in.